Hello listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Wednesday, the 20th of July, 2022. It's the 26th anniversary of my first arrival in Korea, back at uh, Gimpo International Airport in 1996. And we're now on the... uh, Well, I am traveling in a car driven by retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp. Hi, Steve. Hey, Jacko. And in the back seat, we have a retired rock colonel, Ji Honggi. Hi, Colonel Ji. Hello, Jacko. And we're in a car driving on the Guri de Pochon Expressway because today we're making a special on-the-road episode. We're going to Chodwan, which is a county that borders on the demilitarized zone. And we're going to go and look at some places there into uh, North Korea. Chad O'Carroll the uh, founder and managing director of NK News and NK Pro will meet us up there uh, in Choron and we'll hop on a bus and look at a number of interesting sites. On the way, on this expressway, we're going to take a little stop off to check out a 38th parallel marker, which is one of the places where the... Uh, no, says Steve? Nope. It's after the uh, expressway ends. After the expressway ends, we're going to stop off and look at a 38th parallel marker which is where the uh, North Korea's 4th or 5th Division, one of the divisions, came south at the very beginning of the Korean War in uh, June 1950. So we're going to recall a little bit there with some uh, educational material from Steve Thapp. Lot There'll be lots of educational stuff from Steve throughout the day. Are you ready, Steve? Have you got your, your files uh, activated and your chip on? We're ready. Excellent. All right, and it should be an interesting day. I'm not sure how clear the weather will be. How far do you think we'll be able to see into North Korea? I think it's going to burn off a little in the afternoon, so, you know, 10, 20 kilometers. All right, give us a little preview of... uh, We're going to go to a couple of uh, observatories and a tunnel, is that right? Right. Uh, We'll start off by going to uh, Tunnel 2. Well, first we're going to go to Gosokjong in the Chorwon, and that's where you sign up for uh, the first tour that we're going to do today. That'll take us to Tunnel 2. and uh, That's an infiltration tunnel built by or dug by the North Koreans under the demilitarized zone to sneak battalions into South Korea. Is that right? Right, and it was discovered in March of 1975. Then the second place we'll go to is the Unification Observatory just inside the edge of the DMZ where you can look out into uh, North Korea into the uh, Chorwon area and then uh, we'll wind up at a, a little former railroad station called Wultong uh, Niyok and uh, it's the original building as I understand it maybe renovated a little bit but it was uh, built there during the Japanese occupation period. Is there a bit of Chorwon County in North Korea? Yeah, Chorwon, there's a, a Chorwon in North Korea and a Chorwon in South Korea. Ah, so it's one of those divided counties. Not only that, there's, as I recall, there's a Chorwon city in North Korea, or Chorwon Township, whatever you want to call it. Ah. But an actual village, or, you know, something a little bigger, but there's two. There's a North Korean one and a South Korean one. Now, I was doing a bit of reading last night, Steve, and I read that... Um not very long ago, I think just about a month ago, there were some mines that went off in Chodwon uh, killing an agricultural uh, farmer worker. Uh, did you read about that? Yes. Uh, in fact, Colonel G uh, is the one that 
forwarded that article to me. He's probably a little smarter on this. All right, Colonel G, tell us what you know. That thing, uh, I think that we lay mine uh, to defend uh, ourselves, but uh, due to the heavy flooding, that uh, rain rushed uh, that anti-tank mine into the ditch. So uh -huh. the guy tried to uh, clean the ditch, he hit the mine. That's the incident. What did he hit the mine with? With his foot? He was have an excavator. Ah. Yeah, that hit the, the, the mine and the heat dead instantly. That's very unfortunate. How often do accidents like that happen in Chorwan or anywhere along the demilitarized zone? Yes, uh, once we have heavy rain, uh, the rain moves that uh, anti-personnel mine up to the riverside. But the uh, anti-tank mine is heavy, it's not moving too much. Ah. But anyhow, some people uh, fishing riverside, they hit the mine, happens how how he oh every year yeah. how heavy is an anti-tank mine anti-tank mine is uh, i think more than 20 kilo or um, something like that okay that's quite heavy now uh, famously in i think uh, 2015 when park kun was president there were two south korean soldiers who were seriously injured by north korean mines do you remember that incident right now were they mines that had washed south in the rains or were they mines that had been put there by north koreans but uh, that's uh, intentionally North Korean uh, laid uh, that mine where our Korean patrol soldiers moving in and out one special gate. So they put the mine in that. How can we know that for sure? Because uh, we have no rain on that day. Every day they, they are patrolling on that route, but one day it was blow up. So that is means that uh, uh, North Koreans intentionally laid the mine. Steve, you got a comment? Yeah, that was that's that's like on a ridge line. That's not in a valley. Ah. It's so there's not a stream nearby, and the North Korean mines, unlike ours, are made of wood, right. which is one of the problems when you have flooding. Is these wood mines easily float south? Um, not not intentional by the North Koreans, but it still happens. But these were wooden mines placed at a, uh, a gate through the south barrier fence. All right, so that, that means that uh, a North Korean soldier, or more than one North Korean soldier, would have had to have walked through the demilitarized zone, the four kilometers of the demilitarized zone, with these wooden mines to plant them on the ridge line. Is that correct? Yes, uh, they know where those uh, locations are, where those gates are, because they've been watching this activity for 70 almost 70 years right. and their intelligence operatives would know how to get there uh, there's a lot of vegetation around the DMZ which which blocks uh, visibility and so they could have been able to sneak up there and do that one of the things you'll see or you may have noticed as you go up to the JSA near Pamunjom after that is that there was a big wide clearing um, made just north of the South Barrier Fence, so that all the vegetation there was all ripped out, and there's a big wide area, probably 40, 50 meters wide. Now, what would be the purpose of laying mines um, in a patrol area like that when, uh, in 2015, when there really w there was no combat, there was nothing going on? It's to kill or wound people on our side. Right, and is, is that something that still happens, uh, Colonel G? 
does North Korea uh, still try sometimes to kill or wound South Korean soldiers? Of course. Uh, besides that, they have uh, uh, sunk our uh, sailors. And right, they the, sunk yeah. the battleship, the Cheonan? Yeah, of course. And then they shoot the uh, Yeomtangdo. So we never know what's going on in the future. Right. So we have to be ready. Yeah. Now, um, Steve showed me your resume earlier, and I noticed that you had written a paper about um, lessons learned from a demilitarized operation in 2002. Yeah. What was that about? Tell us about the 2002 operation, and what were the lessons learned? At that time, I was uh, G3 of uh, 25th... Wait, what's the G3? Uh, our listeners may not know. G3 is in charge of operations and training of the unit. So, uh, during my tenure in that division, we have a shooting exchange uh, with uh, North Korea. Oh, where was that? It was uh, 2001. Uh, but where? What was the location? Uh, location is Yeonchan. Uh, area so that the sh shooting is changed be between GPs where the GPs are close together each other. Uh, guard posts. Uh, guard posts actually yes so uh, at that time North Korean uh, they shot the machine gun against to our GP guard post and then we returned fire not immediately but uh, anyhow the lesson to learn is that we have to very good at rules of engagement in the armistice agreement. So, so number one, we have to be familiar with uh, rules of engagement. Right. Uh, the the leader up front, they have to be uh, responsive with their rules and experience. So we were so late. To return the fire or any other actions, so so we have uh, trained uh, uh, again and again. So yeah, that's the story. So that's the number one lesson. Um, Steve, what's a, a general comment about rules of engagement? Well, as we've talked before, rules of engagement are usually classified uh, confidential or secret uh, because you don't want the bad guys to know exactly what you're able to do and not able to do you know it's similar to the uh, the dog being on a leash and the cat knowing exactly how far the leash goes and the dog staying or the cat staying just outside of the uh, leash range so that it can uh, torture the dog so each side has its own rules of engagement and the best thing is to not publicize it to the other side yeah, if you publicize your rules of engagement, then you've uh, really made them ineffective. Okay, but is it a general rule of engagement that if you're fired upon, you fire back? Yes. All right. Uh, Steve, you have a, a unique distinction as possibly being the number one fan of the NK News podcast. You've heard every single episode in order in a very short period of time, haven't you? Yes, I have. Why did you do? Why did you inflict that upon yourself? You know, Jack, I got to tell you, I just can't get enough of your voice. <laughs> Flattered though I am, uh, did you actually learn anything from it all? 
I, uh, I would listen to podcasts here and there, and I, they just seemed out of uh, sync. And by going back and starting with number one and working from front to back uh, made a lot more sense. It was almost like an audible book for me. And you learned the same way that I did. Yeah. Or in the same order and the same speed, more or less. Yeah. Right. And uh, so when you would make comments, uh, they would be more logical because I'd already uh, heard about this on another podcast. Right. Uh, and you've been very kind to uh, go up and write reviews on uh, on Spotify for us, haven't you? Audible. Audible. On Audible. Yes. How many reviews have you written? Uh, since I caught up, I'd say probably 13 or 15. Wow, that's fantastic. Thanks very much for writing that. We do, of course, encourage our listeners always to uh, leave reviews and to share podcasts. Have you ever shared an episode with anyone, Steve? Yes, I have. I share them all the time. Awesome. Uh, do you have any favorites? The ones I'm in. <laughs> Obviously. Well, then, today will be an instant favorite even before you hear it. Exactly. Excellent. Have you ever heard the podcast, Colonel G? Uh, I heard of that before, but uh, it's my first time because he gave the link of right. your news, so I listened to that. That's my first time, anyway. Ah, thank you. We have about 250 episodes now, so there's a lot of hours uh, of listening pleasure for you when you have nothing else to do. Yeah, actually, I'm very impressed uh, of that uh, subject where it is related to South Korea. There are so many experts. We can get some kind of advice or some kind of insight uh, to listening uh, your podcast. Thank you, anyway. Well, thank you. And I, I noticed from your resume that you also have some interesting work experience. For example, you were the uh, military attaché to the United uh, to the South Korean mission to the United Nations, right? So, what was that experience like? Yeah, uh, UN actually the main job is to peacekeeping. So every member country like uh, Republic of Korea. Uh, we have peacekeepers. That's why I have a dealing with that business with UN headquarters. Did you ever meet any North Korean diplomats when you were in New York? Of course. Yeah. What was? How was that experience? That was very interesting. Uh, however, uh, North Korea is a member state of UN. They does not do not participate in peacekeeping operations, which means they don't have military attaché. Ah, so, so who would you meet then? A political officer? Yes, the political officer, they have a double job. But anyhow, they are participating in the meeting, uh, uh, what's going on in the peacekeeping uh, operations in UN. Just ah. they are monitoring and maybe they are sending that information to the headquarters. Anyway. What are some different peacekeeping missions that South Korea has participated in over the years? Uh, as you know, uh, we have a lot of overseas mission under UN or under bilateral agreement or regional agreement. So people say if uh, South Koreans are working outside, they think it's peacekeeping. But there is a different uh, uh, in terms of it's under UN flag or in the under bilateral agreement or something like that. Right. Can you name some examples of, uh, of UN flagged uh, peacekeeping missions that South Korea participated in? Yes, uh, we uh, participated right after we got a membership of UN. That was early in 1995. But currently, we have uh, two contingent 
uh, one in uh, Lebanon, ah. uh, one in South Sudan. Uh, that composed of uh, uh, three or four hundred personnel each mission. So another one, we have a military observer, military staff in each mission. That was deployed by individually, not the contingent. So totally, uh, we are engaged around uh, uh, 800 uh, personnel. Wow, okay. And uh, what, what does that usually mean, being a, a peacekeeping mission? Does it mean standing a, a guard with guns? Or what is actually, what, what kind of work is involved in that? Okay. Uh, UN peacekeepers, they are sent to the conflict area when agreement, ceasefire or peace agreement with both sides agreed. Then UN will be deployed to monitor how the ceasefire agreement is implemented, if, if, if something like that. So UN is not a fighter. UN peacekeepers is going there to uh, keep their country under control or they guard the humanitarian agency to deliver food or some kind of support. So uh, that's the mission. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I guess the only time that the UN was an active fighter was in the Korean War. Yes, that's the uh, first time for the uh, UN with the fighting mission. But before that, there is a lot of observer mission, like uh, to uh, Middle East. There is a war between Israeli uh, troops with uh, neighboring Arab countries. Ah. That was uh, the uh, observer mission, not contingent. But uh, uh, during the Korean War, under the UN resolution, the 16 countries and the troops, that is the one and the most uh, uh, UN involved. Yeah. since uh, it was expected. Steve, where are we now? We're uh, just past Pochon. We're still in Pochon uh, County, and we're about probably 10 minutes away from the 38th parallel. All right, we're still in Steve's car on the way to the uh, 38th parallel marker, but I've, I've decided to record a little bit here, a little interlude, because uh, Steve's going to give us Armistice 101. I've just learned that despite what the North Koreans told me when I went to uh, their building on the northern side of uh, the JSA on several of their tours, that the Armistice was not actually signed up there. Uh, Steve, you told me that uh, General Mark Clark signed it at what later became Camp Pelham and then Camp Gary Owen. It's been closed since 2004. How did this happen? Why do we think that they signed the Armistice up at Panmunjom or near Panmunjom? The armistice was exchanged at Panmunjom by uh, General Harrison and Nam Il, at, and, and they, they uh, signed their part of it at 10 o'clock in the morning on the 27th. Within a in that building built overnight by the North Koreans? In the building built overnight by someone. Okay. Um, but there were 18 copies of the armistice that were... Uh, First taken to Moonsan, then brought back and, and taken to uh, Kaesong. Uh, and Moonsan is where Mark Clark's on. Kaesong is where Peng Dawai, the commander of the Chinese People's Volunteers, signed. And then up to Pyongyang, where Kim Il-sung signed it. Not exactly sure of the, uh, the order, um, but 
then they were finally returned and uh, we received six copies two in English, two in Korean and two in Chinese So you said there were 18 copies and all so does that mean that North Korea got six copies the Chinese People's Volunteers got six copies and the UNC got six copies? Yeah, unless, I, uh, unless I'm wrong I'm pretty sure that's the way that, that it happened Okay, and so there were multiple signatures on each of these documents then. So you, you mentioned uh, General Clark and General Harrison. Right, there's, there's five signatures on each one. Uh, General Clark and, Ge I mean, General uh, Harrison and, and Namil signed below the signatures of the commanders. And why was that? Uh, because they were the ones that actually met at, at Panmunjom and uh, did the formal signing at 10 o'clock on the uh, 27th of July. Right. Uh, was General Mark Clark senior to General Harrison? Yeah, General Harrison was a three-star general. Mark Clark was the four-star. He was the UNC commander. Aha, uh -huh. okay. So they were kind of like, uh, what, almost adjutants in a way, uh, was signing for their uh, bosses. Well, they were the lead negotiators from North Korea and, and uh, the UNC. Uh -huh. Now, famously, the South Korean side did not sign the armistice. Was this uh, known going in that they wouldn't do that? The, the armistice was signed by the military commanders. And so Mark Clark signed on behalf of the United Nations Command. And because he had operational control of the South Korean forces under United Nations command, then that's why it was done that way. Now, I know that the uh, South Korean president then, Lee Sing-mun, didn't approve of the armistice, but he had agreed to go along with it in exchange for a mutual defense treaty from the U.S. Colonel G, what are your thoughts on uh, Lee Sung-mun and uh, not wanting to, uh, to stop the war in 1953? The main idea of uh, President Lee Sung Man is he wants to unify our country. If this kind of agreement made, that the war will be uh, broke out again. He was worried about that. So, but anyhow, the situation is not favorable for him. So the uh, war lasted over three years. So that's why he has to uh, agree with the main idea. Now, uh, you're a, a retired military man. You've served a long career in the South Korean military. Um, what do you hope for in terms of uh, North-South Korea relations and unification? What's your hope, your wish for the future? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we Koreans are saying that we want unification. And uh, we are asked when unification will happen. I say, yes, we don't know when, but we are on the way. Uh, yeah, it is very difficult. Uh, even as a Korean, if I ask, how can you unify your country? Even the politician, scholars, they cannot propose exact plan for that. But main idea, uh, I can say three points. Number one, we have to avoid war. Number two, 
that's kind of uh, ironic but number two we have to be ready to go into the war that's main point. Another one, uh, if we know each other, uh, we can get friends, right? So in terms of that, uh, North Korea, the people, they should know South Korea or the world, what's going on outside. Then they'll change their mind. So they are all brainwashed at the moment. They never know without uh, with outside so we have to have some kind of operation that North Korean common North Korean should know what's going on outside of their country then as time goes on we have some change for the uh, uh, positive uh, result yes. thank you have you ever met a North Korean soldier uh, by when I do patrol TMG area I saw it but never talk <laughs> ah, you've never talked. Okay, so that third part about knowing each other, that's the hard part, isn't it? Yes, hard part, but uh, we have to have uh, uh, some kind of uh, campaign. Yeah. Uh, Militarily, politically, every other means we have to try to do our best. All right, so we've arrived at the 30th parallel marker. Let's go and have a look at that. Steve, tell us what we're looking at here. Well, this is one of a couple of rocks up here with 38th parallel carved into them. There's also a 38th parallel cafe and a 38th parallel gate or something. I saw a rest stop. Yeah, that used to be a rest stop over there, but it's been closed for a number of years. Oh. And so, but this is where the war started. So the uh, third division of the North Korean People's Army started their attack from right here south along with elements of the 104th regiment later in the day we're going to see where the fourth division uh further further up the hantan river or down the hantan river we're going to see where the fourth division launched their attack and we have a couple of markers of it should we go and have a look at them so this one commemorates the beginning of the uh korean war and you can see it's uh, Pochon City, and we've got some American, an American and a uh, South Korean flag uh, in a little altar in front of it. This looks like quite a recently made uh, memorial. Doesn't look very old. 2004. Okay, it's pretty recent. Yeah. Whatever the rules are. Okay, it is 10 to 10. Uh, we've we've met Chad. Hi, Chad. Hey, Jacko. How's it going? Welcome on the podcast, and we're looking for Colonel G. Who's getting some dry red. Quick surprise here. Uh, we thought we were going to take a bus up there, but it looks like we're taking individual cars with some kind of an emergency yellow light on top. Steve, what's all that about? Well, sometimes if they don't have enough customers uh, to fill a bus, then that's what they do. And what does the light signify? I guess it just tells us tells the uh, the guards at the uh, civilian control line that were part of this group. It reminds me of so many police dramas and cop films where they ha would, would drive an unmarked car and then at some point the guy would open the window, like I'm doing now, reach his hand out and then thunk a light on the top with some kind of magnet or suction cup. Starsky and Hutch. There you go, Starsky. Yeah, well, in every country we had versions of them. Um, what, what actually uh, affixes these lights to the roof? Is it a magnet? I assume so. 
All right. Hopefully that doesn't ruin your paint job. And you say that Colonel G is getting some kind of education in how to drive. Well, he's he's getting some instruction on uh, what to do and what not to do. Okay. Uh, so who who puts on this tour? Is this uh, organized by Choron County? Yeah, Choron County runs this one and also the one we're going to in the afternoon at Sugni Observatory. Uh-huh. Um, and so this tour includes, uh, as you said, the second tunnel uh, and the Peace Observatory. Right, as well as the uh, the uh, train station, Wuljongni uh, Yok. Okay. The uh, all across the entire DMZ, all, at almost every place, it's run by the local county um, or city. In the case of uh, Paju, right? There's, there's there's a couple that aren't that way. One of them is Dorasan or Odusan, which is actually run by the national government. Huh? And so it, it overlooks the Han River estuary, the mouth of it. But the rest of them have a tie. And uh, the other thing is, is the division commander in that sector also is involved in making rules. Ah. And so that's why when you go from place to place, the rules are, are different because you have a different division, different division commander. Right. So we're here in the sixth division area over here on the west side of the Chorwan. When we go to the east side to the 15th division area, it's got a different commander and a whole different set of rules. What would be an example of a different rule? Well, we can't drive a bus onto the observatory over there at the uh, uh, Victory Observatory, Sungni. Steve's got to get out and get some education. All right, so we'll just wait here then, Steve. Oh, excitement. Uh, Chad, I saw a story yesterday when doing some research to prepare for this tour that um, Quintana, the uh, former UN Special Rapporteur on uh, Human Rights in North Korea, made a trip up to Choron just a couple of weeks ago and visited one of the observatories that we'll be seeing today. Uh, yeah, so um, we, we spoke to Quintana recently while he was in uh, South Korea and he expressed regret at the fact that um, during his entire stint um, under the uh, Moon administration, and I guess part of the Union administration, he'd not been allowed once to visit the JSA Joint Security Area. That's cr what, what? Anyone can just join on one of those tours, and he, he wasn't allowed? Uh, yeah, and so the only border places he could go to during his um, post uh, was basically areas like this or Odusan. Uh, in other words, the um, less formal inter-Korean um, mm. lookout points where North Korean officials are much less uh, close. And I, you know, I guess the only reason I can think um, this could be an issue is because the, especially the former South Korean government wasn't keen to um, have someone that represents, uh, you know, the international focus on human rights uh, be close to North Korea, lest it, you know, create untoward feelings from Pyongyang or any friction, things like that. So I, I guess, yeah, this was the, these kind of places were the only places he could go. That's what, what I heard. Right. Now, South Korea, the new South Korean government has uh, uh, appointed or nominated somebody to be the new North Korea, ambassador for North Korean human rights, right? Yeah, um, I, I I don't have her um, detail. I think it's Elizabeth Salmon. I need to check that. But uh, or Salmon, she's um, also coming from Latin America, I believe. Um, in fact, uh, oh no, I meant the South Korean one, the, uh, Ms. Lee. Um, name just uh, Xinhua, who has been uh, just named by the South Korean government this week. 
Yeah, the new South Korean human rights ambassador. Yeah, so it's Elizabeth um, Sylvia Salmon Garate is her name, uh, and she's coming from Lima, I believe. Um, I don't know much about her, but um, she'll be the new special rapporteur. South Korea has a new ambassador on human rights um, who doesn't seem to have much of a background in human rights, um, more uh, related to multilateral diplomacy, uh, humanitarian issues, which is an interesting appointment from the UN administration's perspective. Although she did, do, uh, she did serve a stint on the Rwandan uh, genocide international trial, as I recall. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that, but... Um, uh, a former student of hers told me that his ex his perspective was she doesn't have much combined experience of North mm. Korea and human rights. Uh -huh. Maybe there are portions of those portfolios that have been um, developed elsewhere, but um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, it always takes fresh thinking to yeah. create new ways forward on North Korea. Excellent. The tunnel is still closed. Oh, because of COVID? Right. Originally, it was supposed to open at the middle of last month, but it uh, now they're saying at the end of this month. Okay, there'll be no tunnel visit tonight, Chad. Okay, no. Uh, still closed for COVID. Okay, so I see here on the paper map that they've given us, Chad, uh, rather Steve, that they've actually crossed out number one. So the tunnel is not there. So the first thing we're going to do is see the observatory. Right. The Chodwan Peace Observatory. And the good part about that is we'll have a lot more time up there, and I think that's probably a, something Chad's more interested in, in anyway. Huh. Into the north. Are we on the east or the west side of Chodwan right We're now? On the west side of Chodwan. Okay, the west side. So closer to. So next to us is what? Paju? No, uh, Yonchun. Yonchun. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I I, I saw uh, last week. Um, that there was a, a firefight here in Choron back in 1992 where three North Korean infiltrators had somehow gotten south of the demilitarized zone and, and, and even south of the civilian control area, I think, uh, Steve. Uh, were you in Korea at that time when that happened? No. No. Uh, Colonel G, do you remember the uh, the 1992 fight in Choron? Uh, I'm not so good at... Uh you know, the date of the... But I, I, I'm not sure. Ah, maybe. Okay. I, I think we can bump into somebody at the observatory. Oh, good. We, we can, can ask. Uh, probably ask about. Right, because Chodron has seen its share of, uh, of action over the years, hasn't it? It's not been quiet. Mm -hmm. And also, we don't know exactly where... Again, there's three divisions here. Yep. And uh, we're going to go to two division areas today, and it could have been in the third place. Mm. All right, our tour, our, our convoy of tour vehicles has left, and we're uh, heading towards the uh, the Peace Observatory. I've never seen a tour done like this with so many individual vehicles all sharing the same yellow light stuck to the side or the roof. This is uh, similar to the way they do it at, at Victory Observatory, as we'll see this afternoon. Difference is there's no light. Ah, is that a, a one of those different regimental rules that you mentioned? Yeah, it's, well, it's not regimental, it's divisional. Divisional rule, right. Yeah, they uh, they come up with these uh, things, and and they're dealing with the uh, the local 
well the local government and the local division are dealing with each other on it you know it's interesting further to the east of here between the Chorwan and uh, the east coast there's two more observatories and a uh, tunnel and that the uh, the one just east of Victory or Sungni Observatory is called Seven Star because it's uh, that's in the Seventh Division area. A lot of these uh, names come from the division's name, and so or the division's uh, slogan or whatever. But in that case, the observatory itself is technically in Chorwan. But because the division is mostly located in Huachan County, then uh, Huachan County is the one that runs that observatory. Ah. Now, um, I had a question for you uh, about Choron. Um, Let me explain what we're looking at here. We're looking at a, a big open plateau. You, you're hard-pressed to find this open an area, as you'll see as we're driving north. And originally, this was North Korea. You know, we stopped at the uh, 38th parallel marker. Yep. And once we left there, uh, we've been in what was originally North Korea from 1945 to 1950 when it was uh, recaptured. Or actually, since, uh, you know, there was a period there where, where it was changing hands. But this wasn't a big battleground until the last year and a half, two years of the... Uh, uh, war when the armistice talks were taking place and so it's very prized agricultural area the uh, the soil is very rich it's uh, got a lot of volcanic rock and, and ash in the soil here because of volcanic uh, volcanoes uh, many hundreds of years ago yeah. but you know if you can look out here to our right just look at how flat that is that's uh, this was a big loss for the North Koreans to lose this um, rice basket. Originally, after the war, this was all kind of part of uh, a, a civilian control line, you might say, or north of it, because this was a restricted area. And it wasn't until the mid-1960s that the South Korean government and the 8th Army 8th Army was the... The U.S. 8th Army. Yeah, the U.S. 8th Army was the uh, ground component command for the United Nations command at the time. That was before there was a CFC. And so they were responsible for everything along the front line. And so the, uh, the South Korean government and 8th Army came up with a deal where they would allow them to put in uh, villages at certain places here. One, to uh, put unemployed soldiers into work, you know, give them some land. Two, to get the land prosperous, because the land was just sitting here fallow, because mm. there was nobody to farm it. And three, was also to provide local security. So, uh, they called them uh, uh, unification villages. Mm. And there were several hundred put in. The most famous one is the one that changed its name and, and just called itself Unification Village, which is uh, Tungyotun near... Uh, That's in Paju, isn't it? Yeah, it's in Paju, just across the uh, Imjin River. 
and uh, but all of these were named uh, unification villages. That was actually a, a very late one. It wasn't founded until August of '73. Mm. But uh, the ones around here um, started in '66, '67 time frame. In a, in a way, they were a little bit like the strategic hamlet program that was in Vietnam a few years before, but much different. Um, the the village itself was organized as a militia unit. Mm. So you had ex-soldiers with their families there and the government built them, built uh, concrete uh, houses and storage bins and all these other things. And they also had an arms room and uh, weapons. And they would have to do military training and, and things like that. But by having these villages all along the DMZ, it, it gave the South a buffer against North Korean infiltration and raids. And this was also about the time that we saw the big increase in fighting between 1966 and 1969. Right, that was what they called, what, the Second Korean War or the Undeclared Korean War? Right. Um, will we be going into the civilian control zone at any point? Yeah, we're, we're going to cross into it pretty soon. And one of the... Uh, one of, one of the, the points they gave us in the driver's education was don't take pictures of military facilities, especially once we cross the uh, civilian control line. Uh, same rule as in North Korea. Now, Chad, for our listeners who may not be familiar, what is the civilian control area or the, the line of civilian control and how does it differ from the demilitarized zone? Chad or Steve? Steve's better for that one. Steve, for our listeners at home who may not be familiar, uh, what is the so zone of civilian, the civilian control zone, and how does it differ from the demilitarized zone? Well, the demilitarized zone is based on where the military demarcation line was drawn in 1953 and agreed on by the two sides. And then it, the demilitarized zone extends roughly two kilometers north and two kilometers south from uh, that military demarcation line. I say roughly because in some places you'll find that it's wider than two uh, kilometers and other places that it's shorter than two kilometers because of the, uh, uh, there's a bend or something in the military demarcation line. And uh, we're being ordered to uh, stop here at a lay-by See what's going on? I think they're just making sure they've uh, collected up all the lost chicks. Okay, so keep talking about the civilian control area. So, uh, anyway, then from the southern boundary of the DMZ, which may or may not be marked with a fence, usually it's not, the south barrier fence there is usually either inside or outside of the DMZ, rarely just perfectly aligned with it because the terrain. But South of the uh, uh, southern boundary of the uh, DMZ, going back anywhere from 5 to 20 kilometers is an area where access is blocked um, for, uh, in order to protect military facilities and installations. And so you have to have permission to go up there. For instance, we're going to uh, go through the... Uh, civilian control line and you're going to see farms and stuff up there yeah 
and those people have been cleared and they've got passes that allow them to uh, go into the civilian control zone. Now, I presume that that, that civilian control zone was something set up well after the armistice, is that right? Right, it was set up after, well, it was probably uh, in effect during the war. You know, you don't want the non-combatants getting too close to the war, but I haven't seen any records of that. So, quick question. Uh, so yesterday I was at the uh, Panmunjom and you know on the highway um, where there's that um, control, that uh, there's the highway that leads to North Korea and then there's that control you have to go through. We were all as journalists assembled there and then um, several of us needed to use the restroom. So we started walking towards the control line and uh, as soon as I got close to it, uh, an alarm started going off and then soldiers started running towards me at like the top top speed they could possibly do and were like, stop, 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 where, where, where are you going? And I haven't seen that kind of response at other civilian control lines. I'm just wondering, do you know why that would have been such an extreme response at that one? Again, everything's local. Yeah. Um, and so there was probably a concern with all the, the that media around um, that probably uh, you know made them uh, really tighten up on the security. Right. Right. In, anyhow, uh, the civilian control line goes down, and it's usually only enforced at, uh, along the roads. So. You know, if you wanted to uh, sneak through the fields at night, you might be able to broach it. But huh. I, I'm not sure what you would do after that, because there's still going to be a fence between uh, you and and the DMZ anyway. Right. Now, there was an incident, I think, in 2020, uh, Chad, reported by NK News, in which uh, a, uh, a person was... Uh, arrested in Chodwan trying to defect to North Korea. It, it may have been uh, a defector trying to redefect. I'm not sure, but it was definitely somebody trying to uh, to defect, and they were caught with four cell phones and a wire cutting machine of some sort. Do you remember that that story? I don't remember that one actually. When did you say that was? Uh, in the middle of 2020, maybe uh, or maybe as late as September 2020, but it was definitely in 2020. So about oh. two years ago. Yeah. Vague memory, so they didn't make it, I guess. Then, no, they, they were definitely caught. Um, th there have been times when people have gotten across. Uh, Kanghua door is apparently a popular place to get across where you were most recently, Chad. Yeah, and, and, and I, I often think it might be quite easy from Kanghua door if I was if I was interested in doing something like that. We remember in the early days of the of the COVID pandemic, there was a defector who redefected, yeah. he had actually swum south to Kanghua door and swam north again from Kanghua door uh, and was spotted entering the market of, uh, of Kaesong, his hometown. Uh, Chad, do you remember any of the details of that story? Yeah, that's right. He um, used a, some kind of gutter under under the fencing, uh, went, went down it and then got um, access to the Han estuary and swam across. Um, but yeah, like so we were there last week and we spent an overnight in Kangwado and we were right adjacent to the border. We wanted to go and see what it was like at night time to see what the electricity situation was like in North Korea. And uh, Dr. Andre Lankov drove our vehicle with about nine of us squashed in. Wow. And we stopped adjacent to the Kangwa Observatory, uh, just on the, the, the sort of road, quite similar to this two-lane road, and uh, went up to the fence and, and had a look close up. And we were there about half an hour, 
and I was thinking this area must be highly surveilled, someone's going to come, um, this looks suspicious, nine foreigners standing adjacent to a, an electrified, well I presume electrified fence at 10pm uh, at night in the dark, but no one came and um, it made me think that you know this border is not as highly monitored and surveilled as, um, as some people maybe think. Uh, I don't know if, if um, Steve, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Steve or Colonel G, I'm, I'm interested in hearing both of your thoughts about the level of security along the, the, the fence line. Oh, just briefly, see that little black thing there? Yes. That wasn't part of our convoy, he cut in, but that's probably his flag to get uh, in and out of the civilian control zone. Oh, I missed that. It was a black thing on his vehicle, was it? Yeah, it was uh. stuck in the window. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, so uh, back to, uh, to Chad's question about the, the level of security and surveillance along the fence line. Colonel G? Level of security currently or? Yeah, these days. I mean, Chad was half an hour along the fence in Kanghwadaw and no soldiers came to look and see what was going on. Is that a sign that security can be lax in some places? No, we do have a level of security. Uh, at the moment, number three, two, one. It is be elevated according to the situation, but anyhow, the, we cannot defend all the movement, all the infiltration. But it happens. Then uh, uh, army blamed for for you know idling or lazy something like that. But anyhow, they say they are trying to do their best. <laughs> yeah. By the way, let me add something about uh, uh, civil control line yeah. or area so right after the you know uh, agreement of ceasefire that time a lot of North Korean uh, infiltrator coming into the south uh -huh. so we need some kind of secure zone so the anyone after curfew movement we consider is hostile so the locals here farmers they are not they are not happy with that kind of control because they have to show their ID yeah. and they have to come back, uh, you know, even though they can work, but they have to come back to, to their house. So due to this kind of complaint, the civilian control line moving up, up to the southern boundary of DMZ. Uh -huh. But uh, some people are happy with uh, this system because uh, if the farmer is growing ginseng, farm, ginseng is very expensive, yeah. some uh, bad guy steal that ginseng, but civilian control line exists, then soldiers can guard for their property, yeah. so, you know, so interesting. So it's, it's good free security. Right. Uh, Steve, we just passed through some kind of a tank trap just then, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that's, uh, and we'll see a lot of these today. Uh, they're of different natures, call them a tank trap, tank rock drop, tank drop, whatever, but it's it's designed as a temporary obstacle, usually with concrete pillars or even a, uh, a, a big concrete slab over the road. And in wartime, you would blow the legs out from under it uh, so as to cause the road to be blocked um, with these concrete pillars. Now, this is, this is only a temporary obstacle. Does the military have some sort of estimated number of hours, how long it could delay a, a, an invading force by? What, see, obstacles, uh, I was an infantry uh, company commander, and, and the rule on obstacles was 
you always observe your obstacle so you can kill the people trying to clear it. And so the longer, you know, so if, if somebody's got to go through an obstacle, and that's why you have combat engineers, their right. job is to blow things up like this right. and then uh, get a hole so that the main force can punch through. Right. But if you've got observation on it, and, and maybe direct fire as well, then you can tie people down sometimes for a long time. It's hard to say. Mm. But it's not meant to be permanent. It's... It's got to be watched. Right. right. And, and that was something that was absent in June 1950, wasn't it? That ultimately the North Koreans got through all the passes and the roadways quite quickly in their invading force. They were able to take Seoul in just a matter of days. Right. And, you know, in one case, uh, over in Kaesong, they reconnected the uh, railroad uh, during the night mm -hmm. and drove a train into Kaesong the following morning. Wow. So that, obviously that's something that, that South Korea would be trying to defend against ever happening again. How do you, I mean, we saw some tank drops over the, uh, the, the road, but what about the railway? What's, uh, what's the equivalent for a railway? Well, railways are much easier. You just blow up the tracks. But, but uh, I think they, yeah, you just blow up the tracks. You know, it's, it's very hard to maintain a, a good railway. Uh, but although, I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, you can you can lay new track at night time and reconnect it up. Yeah, that's that's true. But again, these obstacles are temporary, mm. and so just like uh, blowing the uh, the uh, the tracks up, it can be repaired. But oh, hello! Oh, it's lovely merging in South Korea. <laughs> He obviously didn't see the yellow light on top of your car that said you're part of this convoy. They're not being very respectful, are they? No, they're not, not, not obeying uh, divisional uh, rules. The, uh, well, we're still not north of the uh, civilian control line. Yet, ah. so. so in this area, uh, I would say that the Chorwan County government's in charge. Right. Now, how long have there been um, publicly accessible observatories looking into North Korea? Was this something you saw when you first came to Korea way back when? The, uh, when I got here in 1979, I think the only one that existed then was the one here, but not the one we're going to, uh, one that's been closed. Ah. The, uh, the JSA tour was kind of the big deal. Do you know how long they've been doing that? Since the 70s. Right. Um, and uh, even before the axe murder incident, they were doing uh, these small tours where people would go up. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Suzanne Hahn, talks about going up uh, at that time. Right. Um, and then it was more formalized around 1980 uh, for the Koreans. And so, uh, but it was uh, eligibility was done a little differently so I heard you talking on the East Coast uh, podcast about um, the JSA tours were close to Koreans not well most tour companies that I knew of would simply wouldn't take reservations from North uh, from South Koreans because the procedure was too onerous no 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 it's because they weren't allowed to take them ah. 
And so uh, foreigners and Koreans are treated differently in that sense at the JSA. And so Koreans had to go in groups through the Ministry of Unification or the National Intelligence Service. Right. And uh, the uh, foreigners would have to do it through either the UNC or through a tour company that got its applications through the UNC. And Steve, presumably that NIS MOU application process for Koreans is, for example, if a, a group of ultra-leftist nationalists wanted to apply and maybe considering some kind of political stunt, they would try and nip that in the bud, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure that would be the case. One of the things that had to happen, or that was supposed to happen, I'm not sure how much it was followed up on, was that you had to get this stamped by the local police station. Right. So, uh, if sort of I, a good conduct, proof of good conduct or something? Yeah, you don't want to have bad citizens going up there. So, you know, maybe somebody, and it doesn't even have to just be leftist stuff. It could be, right. uh, uh, you know, someone with a long uh, length of burglary or uh, attempted murder or something like that. Are we approaching the civilian control yeah, line now? We're, we're approaching the civilian control line. There's a checkpoint. Uh, Colonel G, have you ever taken your family on a JSA tour? Uh, my family, no, <laughs> unfortunately. Ah. So sometime in the future, yes. Have you ever been with your family to one of the observatories in, in Chorwan or somewhere? Yes, Colonel, yeah, out of the year. Because uh, I was a staff of uh, first division, which covered Dora of the ah. tunnel. We are familiar with that, yeah. And tell, tell us a, a memory that you have of uh, looking with your family from the observatory into North Korea. Uh, because uh, they are military family, uh, when we go up there, they are not so impressed uh -huh. by the normal civilians. Because our life is along the border, so right. they are familiar with uh, the, the situation. So anyhow, that's fun, that's a kind of lesson for them. So, yeah. yeah. So you can see the 6th Division uh, mark here, that's the 6th. It's a red 6-pointer star, sorry, blue 6-pointer star with white, uh, double white outlines. Right, Th these guys aren't Jewish. Uh, right. <laughs> can you explain that, Colonel G? Yeah, that's a two triangle. What is overlapping. Well, overlapping, yes, mm. that makes uh, the 6-pointer star. Right. So it has nothing to do with the Jewish. And I, I see that it says Gugugesadan, so the, uh, the the Division of National Salvation. Yes, of course. During the war, they did a great job. Also, that uh, division was dispatched to Vietnam War. Ah. It was very famous uh, in the uh, battle. The, they're checking yeah, our list. Yeah. And we're going through the checkpoint. There were MPs. But they're, they're soldiers. They're. Uh, the one thing you know about people in the DMZ area, if they're wearing a DMZ badge, mm. I mean, if they're wearing an MP badge, is that they're not MPs. What, what do you mean by that? The, uh, the armistice, well, the, the subsequent agreements that we made requires our armed soldiers in the DMZ to have an MP armband ah. on. Because originally, when the armistice was signed, it was supposed to be civilian police only in the uh, DMZ. 
And five days later, at, at one of the initial MAC meetings, they said, well, that's not going to work, huh. is it? And so they said, we'll make it MPs. Right. So they took all these infantrymen and slapped MP armbands on them. And that's <laughs> why they all have an MP armband. And if you do see actual MPs, you're, they're going to stand out because they're going to have a, a well-polished uh, helmet and a lot of uh, ropes and stuff coming off their shoulders. Right, they have the, the fringes on the on, on the epaulets and things right, like that, don't right, they? Right, right, they're, they're pretty. And don't they have uh, something in the bottom of their pants that rustle when they move? Yeah, you can hear the sound. Yeah, yeah ball bearings or yeah. something? Yes. What's that for? Why do they have that? That makes their pants straight and then they walk, they make sound, maybe they want to draw attention. Uh -huh. you know? So they can't see. So good discipline or uh -huh. something like that. Now, Steve. Now, now, now folklore also says that South Korean soldiers did that during the war mm -hmm. to make it sound like there were more people. Now, what you just said, that if you see somebody in or near the demilitarized zone wearing an MP armband, they're almost never an MP. You can be sure they're not an MP. That reminds me of something we talked about last week, that at the JSA near Panmunjom, if you see a South Korean person wearing a Red Cross badge, you know they're not from the Red Cross. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, in the old days, um, when I worked up there, we had guys from the NIS and guys from the Ministry of Unification, and they all wore Red Cross badges and uh, acted like they were part of the Red Cross. Why is that? I, uh, I, I think it was to just maybe be a cover or something, you know, so that when we had Red Cross talks at the, at, at the JSA, um, there was actually, it was unlikely there would be Red Cross guys there. It would be North-South talks. Isn't that because it, the Red Cross were technically the only two institutions in the two careers allowed to talk to each other? I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, so how often? I, I know in 2017 uh, there was an inter-Korean football match in Pyongyang and a small group of South Korean quote-unquote spectators went and I subs subsequently learned it was uh, a large number of Ministry of Unification staff uh, undercover as spectators. So, uh, yeah, I think... I Were they also wearing Red Cross badges? Uh, probably not. <laughs> right. But, yeah, it does make you think about the... Um, when you have inter-Korean sporting events, the uh, people that accompany the sports persons, what their real assignments are. And I'm sure when people came to the Winter Olympics on the North Korean side, they were similarly from various institutions of government right. concerned with uh, ROK issues and so on. Colonel G, I think the first North-South talks in 1972 involved the Red Cross, didn't they? Yes, of course, yeah. Uh, Red Cross, as you know, that's a worldwide humanitarian organization. So we borrowed that uh, one. But uh, actually, North Korea, they don't respect, you know, international organization. Anyway, under the Red Cross uh, name, we had a talk. Yeah, South Korea visited North Korea for the first time. Right. Yeah. So anyway, one more thing regarding this sixth division. Sixth division is very proud of their achievement. When uh, during the war, when we go up to the uh, Tumangang, Amnokgang, those unit is the first guy to reach Amnokgang. Ah, they took a water. Yeah, took water in the by the canteen. Yep. Then they brought to the canteen to President Lee Seung-man. Oh, wow. 
Isengman. Uh -huh. They say, oh, we are almost uh, unify our country, sir. Then he drank. <laughs> that would have been in in October 1950. Uh, yeah. As Steve points out, the Amnogang is the Korean name for the Yalu River, uh, the border with uh, with China. Okay, now you can see the observatory to our front. Uh, that's where we're oh, going to. The white structure? Yes. Okay. And then off to the left is where Wuljongni is, and is also uh, where the uh, the original observatory in this sector was. The one you said is now closed. Right. We'll see that after we leave the observatory. Okay. I'm going to stop recording for a bit and then start recording again when we get to the observatory. Okay, so here we are at the uh, outside the observatory. Still a bit of fog. This is the, the Peace Observatory. Unification Observatory. Sorry, Unification Observatory. I thought it was Chodwan Kongwa. I, 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 I get like confused. Sometimes if they don't use the division's name, they'll either be Peace or Unification. Uh, okay, so we're looking over into the Chodwan of North Korea. Right. You can see here, there's, uh, this looks like some kind of South Korean guard post here. Yeah, these are good South Korean guard posts here, right there. Horse Hill. Ah. And so we will end up the day just south of there. Why do I feel like I saw a white horse marker um, in Dongduchon? Hmm. It's the same road. Maybe that's why. Okay. Um, now, Colonel G, you and Steve Thapp have collaborated in writing a book uh, about tourism in this area, haven't you? Right. Tell us about that. I think that's a good, uh, good project. I'm very honored uh, to work with uh, my good friend, Steve Tharp. Yeah. I do my best in my part. He will do his best in his part. So, so we can have win-win strategy. What do you contribute to the book? What kind of information do you give? Um, mainly, I'm more focused on the eastern border. Uh -huh. And uh, they develop new uh, bike. Uh, trail. Yeah. So I'll do bike trail information. You're a keen cyclist. <laughs> yes. He yeah. cycles everywhere. Have you cycled all the way along the demilitarized zone? Oh, oh, oh. No. No. But I. This is the uh, the North Korean guard post. There, see the flag? Yeah. yeah. Mm. North Korean guard post right there. <laughs> Chad's got some good photos coming up. Sorry. Sorry, I got excited there. No, it's good. But you can't sit on audio. The North Koreans never fought here. What? Never? No, no. These, Wait. The, the, these were Chinese units in this area. Right, but that was after November 1950, right? I mean, uh, uh, until well, then. Before that, this was North Korea. Yeah. This was North Korea when the war started. So the parallel is far behind. Yes, yes, no, I remember that. But you also said that the war began here. No, it began down there. What? Not here. That's that's in Paj or not Paju, uh, Pochon. Pochon. But uh, the the uh, by the time there was fighting in this area, the the forces out there on the other side that were arrayed against the UNC were Chinese. 
Now, you had a lot of American forces here over to Yunchun, but you had some South Korean units. Um, and then Yunchun was mostly Commonwealth units. And then uh, by the time you get around to Paju, you had the U.S. Marines and the uh, uh, U.S. 25th Division. Gabby, you'll have lots of instructions from me. <laughs> so this uh, this reservoir we're looking on before, this is not the uh, the Jawson uh, Changjin reservoir, is it? No, 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 no. This is uh, something that they uh, it's for agriculture. Ah. When we came up here six weeks ago, Colonel G and I, it was a uh, bone dry. Well. I'll show you here in a second mm. if I can find it. I took a picture and sent it to my friend. Oh, we're doing the English one now. Okay. Good. Nice. Oh yeah, you can see. Yeah. Wow. Right. You want to check out the English? Colonel G and Steve actually both coming together. We're looking at a, uh, an exhibition showing the four different tunnels. Now, I remember hearing many years ago uh, that there was a North Korean defector, a military defector, who said he had personally been uh, responsible for tunnel digging and, w and that there were many, many more than four tunnels. Do we know how many tunnels there are under the demilitarized zone? Uh, we don't know exactly, but uh, we assume that uh, there is more than four. Uh -huh. It's for sure, because uh, we have uh, satellite imagery and uh, defectors uh, testimony, blah, blah, blah. But uh, so far, we didn't found uh, any more except those. But we have much better equipment now than in 1975. Why haven't we found more tunnels? Uh, it's anyhow. It doesn't matter with the technology, it's very difficult to, to find the, the tunnel. That's also, the reason. That would assume that the tunnel has gotten to our side. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, at Tunnel 4, we found that through technology. You know, they had right. these things that looked through the rock and found the hole. But the North Koreans had stopped digging it eight or ten years before. And uh, really, this would have been a horrible tunnel, the location. Also, Tunnel 2 here in the Chorwon would have been a, tunnel, a poor tunnel because it would come out in the wrong place. Uh, What's the wrong place? Well, they'd have come out right in the middle of... Uh, yeah, they, they, you don't want to do that. You want to come out uh, behind the, the South Korean units. But How was Tunnel 2 found? Do you remember? I think it was a tip from the same guy that told us about Tunnel 1. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing that one of the tunnels was found using some method with, with water or steam or something that they dug a pipe. And well, that's Tunnel 3. Oh, that's Tunnel and that's, uh, We knew there was a tunnel coming that way, and uh, so they put boreholes in the, deep into the ground and then put plastic sleeves on them, filled them with yeah. water. And when the pressure hit the bottom of that, it sent the water flying up into the air. Ah. We have a, a special unit to find the tunnel. So we dig a lot of holes, 
But right now, it is problem. This, uh, this hole contaminate the water the underground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, it's another problem. Those are called TNT, Tunnel Neutralization Teams. Uh -huh. yeah, 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 yeah. Would a tunnel actually be significant in winning a war? If you can get forces behind the lines to yeah. attack from a different direction, then that's always uh, crucial. It's the same concept as airborne or air assault troops. Would, would they come in in civvies? Like would, would they be uniformed coming in through tunnels? Well, coming in for a general invasion, they would come in in uh, uniform. Even through a tunnel? Yeah. That would reveal. Yeah, yeah, but, but if they're coming in in small groups to uh, do uh, espionage or right. something like that, they would probably come in in civilian clothes. Yeah. If we're, we're being chased. Okay, we're gonna go. We can practice going through Tunnel 2. They were really short men coming under here. And I'm not familiar with what it is yet. But we're standing here just outside Woljongni Station, which looks, to all intents and purposes, like a very small station house from Japanese times. This is a station on the line between. Seoul and Wonsan, the Kyongwon line, uh, and we're right just meters south of the demilitarized zone. You could see the, the edge of the southern boundary, right? Right, that's right. And we're also just south of the original Chorwon Observatory here, um, which used to be a crane park, has now been condemned. And we see some soldiers that look like they're about to go into the demilitarized zone for a patrol. Would that be a something that would happen regular times every day regardless of whatever the situation is? Well, I'm sure there's a, uh, a schedule. You can see they've got supply trucks with them. And so it's a, uh, it's a supply run. Uh, for the observation post inside the, the, right. the DMZ. Right. Yeah, the guard posts. And so it may be every day, maybe every other day. I'm sure that this is a, uh, a routine milk run. As you know, the guard post uh, on night they have a more sentry. Yeah. So in the morning up to noon they are sleeping. Ah. So all the operations uh, happens in the afternoon. Right. That's why they are ready for the moving yeah. in combat. And that uh, military vehicle has a black flag on the front there, uh, or was it dark blue? Huh? Blue flag. Blue flag. I, I yeah. See. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, military vehicles have to have that blue flag. So when you go to the JSA, you'll see the JS, the security battalion with that kind of a blue flag. And uh, so you'll see it across the area. Now if you see an UNCMAC vehicle, it's got a yellow flag. So when, when you get on a tour bus to go to the JSA, for instance, it'll have a blue flag because that's a requirement under the armistice. Let's go and have a look inside the station. I see there's a bell there that looks identical to a kind of a similar bell that... I've just repeated myself. I see a bell there that looks almost like the bell that said Imjingak. Peace and unification bells are uh, many and numerous in this land. <laughs> Perhaps to make up for the absence of peace and unification proper. I think so. So... A few things I, I learned yesterday is the tree that Moon Jae-in and uh, Kim Jong-un planted in Panmunjom, apparently it nearly died after um, 
being laid and uh, and had very tough growth last uh, last two three years. They had to put erect a sort of wind tent around it. Uh, it nearly died several times and it's grown very little. Some some might say this is representative of inter-Korean diplomacy. Completely mirrors inter-Korean diplomacy. Yeah, that's very sad. Another thing was I learned was that the blue bridge that Kim Jong Un and mm. Moon Jae In went to sit on and have tea. Um, apparently it was erected very hastily by the uh, Ministry of Unification for that summit and it's also fallen into disrepair and has been um, for uh, visitors are, are not allowed to go on it anymore because it's become dangerous oh no it also may be symbolic of Korean uh, wow. did you see anyone from the NNSC on your trip to Panmunjom yesterday uh, on the bus we went past one of the Swedish officials but we didn't get to stop to, to say hello Oh, here we see a uh, what looks like a burnt-out, bombed-out train uh, next to the the train line, the railway line that would used to go north all the way to Wonsan. From here, we see a sign that says it's 104 kilometers from here to Seoul, and it is 123 kilometers from here to Wonsan. So we're almost halfway between Seoul and Wonsan. And if you keep going up the north, you end up in Najin, uh, part of the Nasan. Uh, free trade zone that's 731 kilometers yes Steve the uh, the characters are Chinese characters are Cholma for iron horse Steve is pointing to his Cholma publishing iron horse t-shirt that he always this wears is that where is where we came up with the name Cholma publishing is the company that publishes uh, the uh, the series of guidebooks that Steve and and uh, Colonel G have written are writing are writing but, but Based on this uh, locomotive and the two in the uh, at, at Imjin Gok, then uh, we came up with the Cholma. So. Cholma, the Iron Horse. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're uh, turning the ID cards back over. Ah, because the tour's almost finished. Well, they're going to release us when we get outside of the uh, civilian, control, civilian zone. control zone. And then we can go to the uh, Workers' Party headquarters then, or uh, we can just go straight to lunch in Kimwa and hit it on the way back. Lunch, because I got up at 5.30. Chad's been up since 5.30. Let's do lunch. Okay, Steve, so tell us where we are now and where we're going. Well, right now we're uh, uh, over in the eastern part of the uh, Chorwan uh, County, and we're going up to Victory or Sungni Observatory. And what do we hope to see there? Well, this is the 15th uh, Division area, and we'll see, uh, uh, again, more stuff coming out of North Korea, or looking into North Korea. This is an area where there used to be an electric train uh, that ran from Chorwan to Mount Gumgong during the Korean War. And so it ran in this area here, and we'll, we'll get to see that uh, where the train line went, and uh, we'll see some North Korean guard posts, some South Korean guard posts, some uh, famous uh, Korean War battlefields. Are we hoping? Do we expect that the uh, the fog has cleared a bit since this morning? Well, it looks like it's not as hazy as it was uh, at the other place. 
Now, we, we didn't find anyone at the last observatory to ask about the uh, the shooting incident in 1992 here in Choron, so do you think we can ask somebody at this observatory? I'm sure they don't know anything but anything about it because I checked uh, all my files on this observatory and I don't believe it was here. Okay, well, if they have a museum, I might just do a walkthrough and see if they have any notes about it. Well, they have a lot. They don't have a museum here per se, uh -huh. but they've got a lot of posters from some of their uh, exploits over the years. And the observatory has exploits? Well, the, the, this division in this area of the DMZ. Aha, uh -huh, the 15th Division. Right, the 15th Division. Victory Division. Okay, now we on the way here we passed through the, uh, the Skull and Crossbones Division. What was that one? Yeah, that's the 3rd Division. And uh, their uh, motto is Bekul, which is, you know... Skull. Or white bone. But, you know, they're... they're they're referring to the skull and bones there. All right, yep. And that was the first division to cross the 38th parallel in um, October of 1950, after the Inchon landings, right? Right, and uh, it's based on that crossing that the Ministry of National Defense has their, uh, or that the Republic of Korea has its National Military Day on October 1st. Ah, that's why. Okay, so October 1st was the day that they first crossed over the 38th parallel in an effort to counterattack against North Korea and thereby unify the Korean Peninsula. Right. And uh, the 3rd Division also has an observatory, but it's not as easily ex accessible as uh, Victory and the uh, Peace Observatories are. Does it involve a long walk uphill? Everything has has some kind of walk, but the uh, the bigger problem is uh, they're just not in the normal scheduling thing. But it's it's got the best name of all the observatories because the name of it is Byolgongopi, which means eradicate communism. Nice. That's yeah, a... Moon Jae-in didn't try and change that. <laughs> Apparently not. I uh, last time I went there was during Moon Jae-in's uh, term. See the observatory up on the right. You can see the observatory up there. Oh, look, and there's another, another uh, Protestant church in, in a, a Korean army base. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. Now, are we once again into the uh, civilian control zone, Steve? Yeah, we uh, we entered the civilian control zone when we went through the checkpoint back there. Right, we passed another uh, rock military checkpoint. Yeah, and I think uh, we may enter the DMZ up here. We'll. We'll see. If you look over on the left, you can start to see some uh, landmine uh, uh, markers. Oh, I do. I see some orange uh, upside-down triangles. I saw them also at the last uh, observatory, too. Yeah. yeah, I forgot to point them out there. So far, we are the only people on this tour, actually. We've got our car and the guide's car in front of us. We're the only people here touring today. So here we are. Here we are at Sungni or Victory Observatory. Shut the uh, recording off just now. Do we, do we expect that there'll be any problems recording here, Steve? It depends on how clever we are. Aha. <laughs> Let's try to be clever. 
And we've just finished at the uh, Sungni or Victory Observatory. We're going down to exit the civilian control zone. So we're about to pass the line of civilian control where they will uh, uh, check us out and let us through. Oh, you've got to give me his sack back. Yeah. Come, come, Lita. We are now going through the uh, anti-contamination shelter. <laughs> four hours. Too. Four hours, Chad. <laughs> Now, um, Colonel G, at the observatory, you told me an interesting story. We were looking at the uh, the southern boundary fence, yeah. uh, and it was pointed out that that fence had been moved forward at some time. Could you tell us uh, once again that story that you told me up there, please? And say it yeah. close to the microphone. As you know, uh, the DMG uh, outside from demarcation line to uh, southern boundary of DMG, there should be two kilometers. When you draw line along that uh, regulation, maybe the fence does not give you fine observation. So that's why uh, on North Korean side, they move up their fence. So we also uh, did that with the permission of UNC. So it was uh, my uh, young officer uh, most of my platoon leader friends uh, working at the front, but uh, I was in the reserve division, so I know a lot of uh, my uh, friends, platoon leader, were engaged with that work. Uh, so, firstly, they demining along the original uh, fence, then move forward uh, where that gives you fine observation. So when demining operations, uh, one of my classmates, he lost uh, one leg and one eye. Wow. So he instantly, he discharged from the uh, uh, infantry anyway. So I, that was a story. It was very mm, sad. Uh, that's why you see the, the line is not straight. Sometimes it curves uh, sharply, that's why. Thank you. And you said actually that there were many soldiers who were injured in the mine clearing operations. Of course. Uh, at that time, uh, we don't have much equipment. Uh, only that was done by manpower because uh, the mine, the anti-personnel mine is, uh, you know, mine detector. We use mine detector, but uh, the detector does not guarantee that you can find 100% of mine. That's the problem, you know. So that's the uh, the human cost of uh, moving the fence forward a little bit, just to get a better view over the uh, the territory inside the demilitarized zone. Anyhow, I think one of the neat things about Victory is that it's uh, you can see where the old Japanese rail line, the electric rail line, went yeah. from Chorwan over to Mount Gumgong. That would have been quite an interesting journey through the mountains. You know, and, and uh, I would tell you after unification, I think rebuilding a replica of that yes. would be just uh, really pretty cool. Right. And another thing that I thought was interesting was in the, uh, in the presentation, they talk about 
a North Korean soldier who fell in the river on the other side back in 2001, summer yeah. 2001, and that was eventually repatriated through the JSA. Right. I was involved in that. I was uh, coming back from playing golf in Weijangbu that day, and I got a call saying that they had a defector, or they had a, uh, a guy that floated down. Right. And so I told my boss, I said, we need to get the NNSC to uh, uh, interview him, make sure he wants to uh, go back or make sure he wants to stay. And so I, I, I think about that a lot when I hear the stuff about the uh, two North Korean fishermen. Because this was at a time when the progressives, as they call themselves, or pro-North Korean liberals, as I call them, were uh, running the country. And uh, we were concerned that maybe the government was pressuring these guys to go, or this guy to go back. And so the two-star general uh, that I worked for called me up and said, Steve, I want you to go in and uh, put this, take this guy in a room, throw out anyone with an Asian face. And you ask him, not once, not twice, but three times, do you really want to return? And so, uh, you know, it's just like Austin Powers movies, uh, I had to ask the question three times. But the bottom line was he really wanted to go back. He kept saying, oh yeah, the general is waiting for me. The general is waiting for me. So I said, okay, your life, pal. So that's... Uh, so he was escorted over the line at uh, the JSA near Panmunjom. Right, right. Uh, I remember the uh, ceremony. I, I participated in it as the uh, assistant secretary. What are the rules, the, the UNCMAC rules, on people going back and forth across the line there at the, uh, at the JSA? Well, uh, the armistice is clear that the commanders of each side have to approve a uh, MDL crossing. And uh, or they have to approve someone entering the southern portion of the DMZ, and the two MACs have to approve someone crossing the MDL, which is also the same thing. Crossing the MDL is the same as coming into the southern portion of the DMZ. So the UNC commander has to approve that. So there's an approval process uh, that's in effect, and what has happened traditionally is for the military guys, uh, we at, at UNCMAC would deal with our North Korean counterparts and uh, we would conduct the, uh, the repatriation, whether it be a, a live person or uh, remains, such as Korean War remains or even uh, North Korean People's Army remains of people that drowned and, and floated south. And so uh, we would always do those between buildings. Uh, well, coming our way would uh, be between buildings T1 and T2, and going the other way would be between T2 and th T3. Now for the Red Cross, or for the civilians, then we would let the uh, so-called Red Cross guys handle it, and it would be a civilian type of thing. And so we would not get involved other than to just have people observing 
So if you look at the pictures from... Uh, You're talking about the pictures now of what happened in November 2019 at the JSA near Panmunjom. No, I'm talking about September of 2019 with the two fishermen. I don't know why I said November. All right, September. Uh, anyway, the... Uh, sorry. Uh, you can see an American Navy officer in the picture, and he's recording it because... Uh, even though we don't get into the nuts and bolts of approving or disproving whoever the South Korean government says to send, um, we still try to uh, observe these things. And in that case, you can see the U.S. Navy officer filming the uh, thing with his cell phone. It also looks from that photograph as if there are two NNSC officers standing in the background watching. Well, it looks like there's somebody in the background. I didn't really give that, those guys a hard look. I thought it might be security battalion soldiers. I thought from the uh, the uniform and the beret that it could have been an NNSC, but yeah, I might have been wrong. I, I, didn't, uh, I wasn't scrutinizing for that, so I didn't pay any attention. But it's uh, very likely because they would always uh, try to show up to observe those things also. Right. And what's your... Have you seen also the film footage of what uh, went on there that's no. now been released? No? No. Okay. Uh, Colonel G, did you see the photos or the film of the two North Korean sailors being sent back uh, through Panmunjom? Yeah, they, they are trying to, you know, uh, yeah, definitely that is a sign of refusing going back to North Korea. <laughs> Maybe they know their future. <laughs> What do you think the South Korean government should have done? Yeah, uh, uh, in Korea, it's good and bad when, when something happens, they can find the solution very quickly. So that is the case. So if that happens, we have to have a go through the legal process. We have to consider many aspects of that. but. Uh, uh, with that uh, incident, uh, the decision-making is not proper, uh, it does not have any legal uh, legal guarantee or legal what, uh, something like that. That's why there is an argument uh, by this current uh, government. So I'm, I'm very sorry about that. Yeah. I've got, I've got a, uh, a small follow-up uh, question to, to, to either of you. Um, does the UNC commander have any responsibility for letting this happen? Because it's ultimately the UNC controlling this area, right? Yeah. And, uh, but, but the UNC commander has in the past always agreed to repatriations that were agreed to by the two sides and it does not get involved uh, with the details uh, involving the civilians. Right. So, if North, so as long as South Korea says we want to send these people and North Korea says we want to accept these people, the UNC's policy is not to get involved. Well, that's what it was in the past. And, and I got to believe um, that the UNC probably didn't understand what was going on until they actually saw it at the time. And, and there's nothing that you can do at that point. Steve, when we looked at those photographs, you also pointed out to me that uh, 
while the early photographs of the men taken inside Freedom House show that they are bound, they're tied up with ropes, when they're taken over the military demarcation line inside the, the JSA, uh, they are no longer bound. Well, that's what it looked like to me. It didn't look like they were tied up anymore outside. And, uh, and if that was the case, then the uh, purpose of that was to make it look more legitimate uh, to the outside world, I would think. Right. Now, Chad, I know that you've been following this case very closely for the last few weeks and that it's uh, uh, close to your heart. Uh, have you got any comments or thoughts about it? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Um, you know, I think your, everyone's instant reaction, mine included, especially seeing the photos and the videos, was this is, you know, outrageous. It's, uh, it's crazy that, that it would happen. Tony Young, the uh, National Security Advisor of the time, he's come out with a lengthy statement explaining his position on it. Um, and while, you know, I think many people would disagree with it, he does, he does prevent, present a fairly um, strong case for why South Korea may have done this. Um, I think ultimately, the, for me, the, the most interesting part of this is how it's become a, like a partisan political football, basically, for the new UN administration to bash the uh, prior Moon administration. And as anyone listening to this podcast probably knows, this is a phenomena that takes place every five years in South Korea when there's a change of uh, left to right um, political leadership. And it's, uh, I think overall, it's it's a pity because um, we just have this never ending cycle of recrimination. And let's be honest, all governments probably take steps or actions that are probably outside the bounds of legality. I mean, certainly if we go back to post 2001, George Bush with the renditions and uh, Guantanamo Bay, um, some probably argue he should have faced justice for that, but we don't have this issue in America with presidents, um, uh, you know, being pursued in in this way. And I think it's probably on balance a good thing um, because otherwise it's hard to govern a country, I would imagine. Thank you. Now, um, good friend to NK News and NK Pro and contributor also uh, Aidan Foster Carter and one of our first podcast guests uh, wrote a column uh, for NK News, in which he said, basically, uh, we have learned nothing new from the uh, the photographs uh, that we didn't already know back in late 2019. Uh, and he focused very much on the, the political element that you've just raised here, that it seems to be a new administration using uh, something unsavory to bash the old administration. Uh, okay, I, I accept that that's true. But is there nothing that we've learned um, or is there nothing gained by having both the still images and the uh, the video footage? Oh, I think definitely it should be out there and I don't think this should happen again um, and it's good that there's scrutiny it's just I don't think for example President Moon should be thrown in jail or Chani Young should be thrown in jail for for this you know governments around the world face uh, you know policies of the, you know choices involving picking the least of the least worse of bad options all the time and if you're if you start uh, prosecuting people for making what they interpret to be the least worst choice uh, in the heat of the moment yeah you know, i just think it's it's bad for uh smooth running government in crisis situations not that this was a crisis situation granted but i think you get what, what i mean um that being said i think um 
what I'm disappointed about is that the UN command has not put video out of this. They would have had video from all the security cameras much higher quality than this uh, mobile phone stuff that we've seen come out. Uh, we know they have these cameras in this video from the 2017 uh, young man that crossed the, the uh, MDL at the gym. Right, Sergeant O, when he, did, when he crossed, that footage was released very super quick, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, I think it was about eight days later. And um, my, I've been told by UNC that they won't do it, they won't release anything at the moment because of ongoing investigation. And I asked them, well, there was ongoing, there was investigation after that incident as well, but you were very quick to put that video out. Um, and um, what I'm getting back is that this is domestic South Korean politics, it's different, it's more sensitive, but there should surely be some strict guidelines uh, when public interest events take place like this. Um, I think UNC would be beneficial if they could put their video out to maybe clear uh, our understanding of what happened a bit, because as many, of, many listeners may have noticed, the video that we've seen come out so far doesn't look anywhere near as bad as the stills that we've seen um, of this incident. It, it's very, very brief on the video and uh, the stills suggest something long and drawn out and fraught with a lot of um, sort of wiggling and fighting to not cross the border. But it, the video we, we've seen so far doesn't show that really. Yeah, yes, Steve, what do you think about that? Is there an inconsistency that the UNC were quick to release the footage of Sergeant O's defection and uh, being fired upon by his former North Korean comrades? Uh, but in this case, they're not releasing the footage, saying that the, because that's because of an ongoing investigation. Well, you know, I'm, I might be thought of as being biased on this, um, but I understand the, the politics with or the way they used to be within the UNC, and it's about not getting involved in domestic Korean politics. It, it really is. Uh, this is our ally. We're not going to do things that make our ally look bad, even though we may disagree with what they did. Um, we had a similar issue back in uh, 99, I say similar, in that we disagreed with the South Korean uh, uh, JCS or MND on something, but we refused to criticize them in public. And that was uh, at the first battle of Yumpyeon, in uh, June of 99, uh, the South Korean military had their uh, boats bumping North Korean uh, boats coming across the NOL. And I don't recall that that was uh, something that was in the uh, rules of engagement, but it was clearly making the situation a little more uh, frantic there. And it, it ultimately led to the big shootout on June 15, uh, 1999. Our general sent his counterpart, his South Korean counterpart, a, a letter, said, stop that, don't do that. But in public, we made no criticisms. Yeah. Um, you know, similar thing happened in uh, 1987 the uh, UNC commander then sent a letter to uh, the Rock JCS and said, you know, and I forget what that issue was, but hey, I, I think it might have also been about the NOL, but stop doing this. But on the outside, we have to be one team. But, Mayor, UNC, 
United Nations command, it's not the US command. So when you say we, isn't that kind of distorting what its role is meant to be? It's meant to be surely an objective international entity that is keeping the peace. No, it's not, no. No, it, it, was, uh, it was set up by a UN Security Council resolution I'm probably going to get some criticism from my uh, current UNC buddies, but um, the United States was made the executive agent for administering to this. So the UNC commander's chain of command does not include anybody in the UN. It's the uh, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the SecDef, and the president. And, and so its uh, decisions are subject to the U.S. national authority override and approval. So the, so the UN aspect of it is really, where does the funding come from? It's not from United Nations? No, no. It, it, it's funded by the United States. Wow. So the UN name of it is really kind of irrelevant then, I guess. Well, I, uh, I always laugh. Uh, when we uh, talk about that, we said, yeah, the UN did that once and has never done it again. Um, no, no, I see why. The, the uh, you know, this was uh, big power politics in 1950. Right. And the, the four countries, there were five countries that had veto power, permanent members, and they were the United States, France, England or Great Britain, um, the Republic of China on Taiwan, and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had been boycotting the uh, UN Security Council since January 1950 over the failure to seat the People's Republic of China in the China Sea. So without them there, then the U.S. and its allies were able to just kind of put whatever they wanted to through the U.N. Security Council. And that led to those resolutions, 82, 83, and 84, right. in uh, late June and early July of 1950. And the last one, 84, uh, it uh, authorized the U.S. or made the U.S. the executive agent and had them appointing a, uh, a commander. And that executive agent status kind of re requires the u.s to pay the bills but if if even if it look if it's still under u.s and command is there not still in u.s national interests reason to to flag this uh incident with some some evidence because both sides you could argue are have behaved in in ways that um undermine democratic principles and uh i guess court values of what the, the alliance is all about and on the one side you've had this, the Moon Jae-in government sending these people back um, to their uh, probable death and on the other side you've got an administration that's clearly flagging it for political reasons to try and uh, potentially prosecute former officials and continue this cycle that we've just been talking about and if the UNC you know could put the video out there at least it could you know um, give the public, taxpayers around the, in different countries in the world that are involved in, in the UNC some clarity about what this is all about and hopefully it would lead to this uh, environment not being abused like this.
I would defer you to the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really a high level. Right. Uh, the, the commander here doesn't get involved in local politics. Even at the worst of it, during the coup d'etat in uh, 1979, uh, General Wickham did his best to stay out of the local politics. And but you, you, you may be familiar, UNC and Ministry of Unification uh, were feuding quite a lot openly during the uh, Moon Jae-in administration. And there was a lot of communications breakdowns between the two agreements that the two sides would release information in coordinated ways, and, and it didn't happen. And you'd have uh, corrections almost from the UNC about claims that MOU is making. For example, uh, uh, South Korea being blocked from sending Tamiflu into North Korea. Uh, MOU blamed UNC. UNC said there is nothing to do with it. So th there, you could argue that there is a, a tiptoe into domestic politics with that open kind of dispute that we've seen in the last five years. We've had that uh, happen before. Um, the whole time I was at UNCMAC, it seemed like uh, there was some issue on this or that or the other. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, I've talked to um, some of my uh, buddies from uh, UNCMAC, UNC, and uh, they said, hey, we had this request. We approved it immediately. And, uh, and so they've, on, on the UNC website, they've got a, a, a chronological record of there of when they received requests, when they approved them. And, but you know, what the, uh, the South Korean administration didn't want to do was blame the North Koreans. Because right, right. at the end of the day, it's usually something to do with North Korea that blocks these things. Yeah, I heard the same thing. And so, uh, but you know, we don't go on the offensive. Uh, there's sometimes there, there's a defensive thing, but, but when I worked there, and I think it's probably the same sentiment, uh, we did nothing that uh, would create friction within the alliance. But surely there's got to be a, a red line with that. I mean, we, we, you know, two people being repatriated, if that became a norm, say that that government had won at the elections and that had somehow become a norm with, and you were getting defectors, high-level political figures being sent back and there was outcry. I mean, sh surely if things start slipping in that direction, UNC would, would you know, hold its nose, couldn't just hold its nose and watch. Well, and maybe it's not, um, but you know, those things are not going to be discussed in public. Someone might leak it, but uh, they're not going to come out with public uh, declarations like that. Might be, uh, might be a phone call at the four-star level. Might be a phone call at the presidential level. You know, I don't think the uh, previous American president really cared about two fishermen. Right. And he was the guy at the time. That's true. It's... It's uh, national level politics with some of those things. I do think it's, uh, as far as I can recall, it's the first time that uh, living North Koreans have been repatriated seemingly against their will um, across the line at the JSA. Yeah, it's first time I uh, have heard of that.
It's pretty unprecedented, isn't it? And Jacko, what do you what do you think of it? Uh, what do I think of it? Well, I at the time I thought it was highly troubling. I thought that the uh, uh, the short period of time between the arrest of these two men on their boat and then their handing over was was much too fast to properly ascertain their bona fides and and their actual will. Uh, and now that we've seen um, some photographs and some footage, I'm even more disturbed by it. I don't think that, uh, uh, yeah, it's not something that should be repeated. Again, I, I don't know exactly how things work in the UNC today, but I would be surprised if the decision to release video, UNC video, could be made in this country. Right, right. Hmm. We've uh, said goodbye to Chad. He had to go back to Seoul early. And we have now arrived at the Workers' Party uh, headquarters for Chodwan uh, building, uh, which is an incredible uh, concrete shell of a, uh, a building. The, sorry, la the sign here says Labor Party headquarters in Chodwan, but it's actually the Korean Workers' Party uh, headquarters in Choron, which was built in 1946, uh, because Choron, as Steve pointed out, was originally north of the 30th parallel. So there's a, a photograph of it here uh, as it was uh, right after the shelling. The roof's already gone, but the sign's still on it. Uh, there's a photograph taken ooh, back in 1980. Since then, the sign has been removed, uh, but the shell of the building still stands. And it's, it's quite an iconic piece here in Choron. Let's go up and have a look at it. It's very stark, very brutalist. Um, and it's clear that uh, there's been some heavy shelling. Probably tank shells have gone through the, the walls of this building. In some parts, the, uh, the building is held up by steel pylons where the uh, structural parts have been blown out by the tanks. Really something. Okay, we're back in the, uh, in the Steve's car again, uh, driving south now, away from the demilitarized zone, uh, having just been to Whitehorse Hill or Pengma Gorji, uh, one of the bloodiest and, and uh, harshest battles of the whole Korean War was fought there. Um, Colonel G, what are your thoughts about uh, Whitehorse Hill and the battle that took place there? Yeah, uh, this battle is very famous uh, for all Koreans, even civilians. So uh, every year, uh, July 26th, 5th, uh, veterans show up on TV uh, what they have done and then they tribute to the uh, their friends who died for that war so uh, we consider this uh, here that uh, battle is considered one of the really victorious for our country yeah yeah i read on the sign up there that in 10 days that hill changed hands something like 24 times something really extreme uh and it was pounded with uh, 2,000 or so artillery shells by the, the Chinese People's Volunteers. And so by the time the battle ended, 
the, the, the height of the hill had apparently shrunk a little bit. Uh, it, it's quite something. Uh, Steve, what do you think? I've always been impressed with that battle. I, I got to visit there in uh, May of 1996. I was doing a guard post inspection when I was working at the Military Armistice Commission. And uh, I was still stunned by the, the amount of brass laying everywhere uh, at that time. And so I've always uh, kind of been a student of Whitehorse. And it was clearly a great victory by the uh, South Korean Army over the Chinese Army during the war. And that was probably their most decisive victory over the uh, Chinese during the course of the war. At great cost. At great cost to both sides. Yeah. Now the um, the hill today, I mean, it, it's a different world, right? It's it's uh, peaceful, it's green. There's a uh, a little um, pagoda at the top of it with a bell inside it. Um, you, there's a peace walk going on from there. I mean, it, there's nothing there to to physically, even though there are many memorials and markers about the battle, there's nothing to physically think of, make you think of the battle, is there? Well, they they have. They, you know, the first marker you see has got the names of all the uh, honored dead mm. from the South Korean Army. Um, and as you go up, you uh, see other reminders of the battle. But, yeah, it is a very quiet, dignified place. Right. Yeah, dignified, yeah. yeah I think uh, everyone uh, who's passing through uh, uh, Chodwan or north of Seoul should make a trip out and uh, and visit Whitehorse Hill. Do you agree, Colonel G? Exactly. Yes, they uh, supposed to visit here. Excellent. Well, that uh, brings us more or less to the end of our uh, our full day of touring today. We've we've seen quite a bit. No, says Steve. There's more. Tell me more, Steve. We got one more. Uh 38th parallel marker. Ah, that's right. On the way south, we have another 38th parallel marker to show where the... Which division was it? Uh, the North Korean 4th Division. The North Korean 4th Division, where they crossed the 38th parallel and began the Korean War on uh, 25th of June, 1950. All right, stay tuned. So I'm standing here with Steve and with Colonel G by the roadside here at another... 38th parallel marker. Where exactly is this, Steve? Uh, this is in uh, Chunggok, uh, in uh, Yunchan County, and it's just south of the Hantan River here. Uh, we're directly north of Tongdechan. And what happened here on June 25th, 1950? Well, this was the starting point for the North Korean 4th Infantry Division as they attacked down through Tongdechan and linked up with the 3rd Division in uh, Weizhangbu to uh, do the attack on Seoul. Right, and um, do you know anything about the, si the size of the uh, division that made its initial advance? Well, uh, a North Korean division was about 10,000 men. This was the beginning of the war, so they would have been at full strength. And they would have had at least uh, one uh, uh, tank battalion with them from the 101st Armored Regiment. And uh, I noticed on the, uh, the stone gateway over the, the road here that there's an elephant and some uh, sab what looked like saber-toothed tigers and a giant boar. Were they also part of the advance? You know, they, uh, I think they were part of the North Korean Reserve. Reserve. Uh, actually, uh, Yunchan is, uh, 
it, it uh, has made its little mark on being a, uh, a site for uh, prehistoric uh, people. Ah. And so there were some prehistoric remains discovered by an Air Force, U.S. Air Force soldier and his girlfriend up here in 1979. Wow. And so now there's a prehistoric museum right there. And so everywhere huh. in Yunchun County, you see uh, little prehistoric cartoon characters. Okay, all right. So that's a, uh, a cave human attacking a woolly mammoth. Right, exactly. Yeah, the reason why uh, Yeonchun-gun has, uh, has, is rich with uh, prehistoric remains is yeah. that there's a uh, Hantan River runs. Ah. So the, even the prehistoric man, they catch a, a fish right. from the river and yeah. some, uh, you know, fruit in the mountains. So that's why it's rich with that kind of uh, remains. Wow. So we end our tour today with another 38th parallel marker, kind of mirroring what we saw this morning, but also going way, way, way back in time to prehistoric remains. What a fascinating place here in, uh, in Yonchon County. People should come and have a look at this. And, uh, just one other thing. Uh, the reason I like to stop going up and coming back is to remind everybody everything they've seen today was in what was right. North Korea before 1950. Right, so effectively by crossing this point and continuing southwards, we are heading back into what was for five years South Korea or Southern Korea. Roger. Excellent. So one more thing. Yes. Uh, Yoncheon Station, maybe a few uh, miles to the north. So the station uh, has a nice platform to load the vehicle on the uh, rail deck. Ah. So at that time, there is no need for that, but uh, from the North Korean point of view, they need preparation to send the vehicle or equipment on the trail, uh, cargo, to, 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 to send it to southward. That's why if you go to the Yeoncheon station, there is uh, well prepared for that. Ah, prepared by North Korea yeah. for the invasion the of war, South yeah. Korea before the war, right. And that's, that platform is still there now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. Also, if you can look up the road a little ways, you can see a marker there commemorating the beginning of the war. Yes. Uh, and then you can see some other markers. One of them is to the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division um, for their fighting in the war. It wasn't originally placed here. It was somewhere else, but they moved it to here later. Excellent. All right. And now we're going to continue on south and have a dinner. Yeah. Let's do that. That's an important part of the tour, too. Why don't you stay right here and let me... Oh, what a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way I can get back in the car the way he's parked it. So, from here, it took only three days to reach uh, outside Seoul. Right. Yeah. One of the strong, uh, the big battles uh, before Seoul was Miyari. the uh, Miyari yes, uh, yes. Pass, yeah. the Battle of Miyari yeah. Pass. Yeah. So, the Seoul is holding panic. So the, the Han River Bridge was uh, ordered to, to break down. Right, to, to, they blew up the Han River Bridge, yeah, to uh, stop the North Koreans. Advance. All right, here we go. And that brings us to the end of our one-day tour up to Chodwan, from west to east and back again. And uh, we saw quite a lot. 
um, two observatories plus Whitehorse Hill. We almost saw the tunnel, but sadly it was closed. Uh, big thanks to Steve Tharp for being our driver and tour guide on the day, and also thanks to Colonel Chi Hong Gi for providing additional commentary and information from the South Korean perspective. And thanks to uh, Chad O'Carroll from NK News and Career Pro and Career Risk Group for joining us on this tour today. We hope you found it uh, as entertaining and as interesting as we did. And it's certainly uh, a tour that I would recommend to all of you. Everyone, if you've been to, uh, to South Korea, if you've seen the demilitarized zone over at the JSA near Panmunjom, or, uh, and if you've been over to the East Coast, then it's definitely worth taking a day out to, uh, to check out the, uh, the tour of, um, of, of Chodwan. Uh, I hope that Steve Tharp and Colonel G's next volume of their series of books about tourism on the Demilitarized Zone comes out soon so that you can get your copy of that uh, and use that for a, yeah, a bit of a self-guided tour. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, ch- don't forget, if you have a subscription to NK News, check out a subscription to uh, NK Pro. You can write to subscriptions at nknews.org for uh, more information or for a free trial membership. Please share this episode with, uh, with everyone you know uh, and give us a, a rating and a review wherever you found it. And thanks and listen again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>